Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am a little flustered because I almost forgot to hit the record button so that you guys could be watching this versus simply listening to it. So thank you for all who have joined us. Um, So I am in the middle of a dilemma today, and you can't, if you're listening on the podcast, you can't see my my shirt. And actually, if you're watching this video, you can't really either. So I'm just going to stand up really quickly so you can see my shirt. It says, merci beaucoup. French. I studied French in high school. Um, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a massive proponent of taking foreign language and sticking with foreign language for all four years of high school. There's so many good reasons for doing this. Um, in addition to the fact that it looks great, right? You're going above and beyond. Colleges love that. I think there's a lot of value in speaking more than one language. I, in fact, subbed out science for a second foreign language when I was a senior in high school. By the way, I don't recommend that. That's probably, it wouldn't really fly today, but it was fine then. Um, So I'm really passionate about that. And then many of you also know that I have a teenager in my house who is going through the college process and he is thinking he's not going to take a foreign language in his senior year. And um, he has some really valid reasons for it. One of them is that it's his toughest class and um, he wants to take some really rigorous courses in his senior year. And then in addition to that, he is um, thinking he'd like to take Portuguese when he gets to college. And so he can't really do that until college. So unlike other students where they might be wanting to continue in the same language, he's thinking about changing. But, you know, I wanted to share this all with you to let you know that it is never easy and I can give great advice. But at the end of the day, you have to make the choice that's right for you. Um, And that's what I've said to my son so that because I can think it's a really great idea for him to do French five, but I don't have to take the class and I don't have to take the other classes he's taking. And so it really ultimately has to be his decision. But lest you think that we have all the answers and we know how to do everything and, and everything just falls into line. We are right there with you. Um, Okay, so today we're going to digress from my personal life and situation and share. um, We're going to be talking more about regular decision results. We're also going to be talking about um, demonstrated interest in times of COVID, a little bit trickier. But before we get to all of that, we wanted to talk about parent financing options. And here to discuss that with us is my colleague, Jean Mahan, who is a former financial aid officer at both Tufts and Quinsigamon Community College, my favorite college to name. Hi, Jean. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And thanks for joining us today. Um, I wanted to jump right in and talk a little about, so there's a lot of different ways in which parents can finance their children's college education. So um, tell us a little bit about that. And, And the very first one is maybe the hardest if you're child is a little bit older, but nonetheless, it's a good one to mention. Right. So full disclosure, though, I'm a French major. I was a French major. Now you see, there you go. I did it purely so I could study in France. That was my only motivation for doing it, although I did not. Good motivation. It is. So yeah, let's talk about savings first. So some families have used programs like 529 savings plans or 529 prepaid plans, and they've been putting money into those 
maybe just for a short period of time, maybe since their child was born, and they're planning to use those funds to pay for college. Yay, you. That's great. Yes. If you haven't done that, though, don't panic. You know, there's still time. Even if your child's going to school in six months, maybe we have some listeners who have freshman sophomores. Start putting away what you can. Look at your budget. See what you can put away. Because having something saved is better than having nothing saved. And it's not going to hurt you in the financial aid process. I hear that a lot. Well, if I save, they'll reduce my eligibility for financial aid. It it might a little bit, but not enough to make it not a good worth thing it. to say. Right. Right. As, um, as, yeah, yeah, we've talked about this so many times on the show and just bears repeating. The financial aid formula is primarily focused on income, not on savings. So right. you want to earn a lot more money? Well, that's going to impact you. Yeah. You're just going to save people, a bunch? Not. Right. I always tell people, if you're really worried, have your boss lay you off, you know, or cut your salary in half. And, you know, people are often surprised because I'll say, if you have $100,000 in your all your assets, savings, that's only going to take a hit about 6000 That's what they're going to require. And people are shocked by that. They're like, you, they don't want me to use the whole 100 No. Right. So, you know, it's a good thing to save. So try to do that if you can. Okay. Awesome. So let's assume you've saved what you can, but it's not enough, or you really just didn't save. What um, What's the first place that you would go to when thinking about paying? First place I would go that I think a lot of families aren't even aware of is tuition payment plans. I totally love these. And I was so excited because a family sent me an award letter the other day from a school and the school had actually listed that as a resource instead of including parent plus loans. And I was like so excited about that because so many families don't know about it and it's a great option. With a tuition payment plan, you set up an account with the school, usually with the school. Sometimes it's with an outside vendor that they're using. You pay an account setup fee. The highest one I've ever seen is $100 for a one-year plan, but typically they're less than $75 for the year. And then you decide how much you're putting on that plan. Maybe you can only afford to put $4,000 on it, and you're doing that over 10 months, and that's $400. You might think, well, that's really not very much. But think about 4,000 times four, because we're talking about four years here. Right, right. $16,000 less borrowing, and that's no small change. That's huge. Right. Um, You can use those with student loans and parent loans. You can be, you know, a three-pronged plan to pay for college using the tuition payment plans. Check them out. If if you're ready to make a decision on a school, just go to their um, website and type in tuition payment plans and see what they offer and what you need to do. Typically, you do need to sign up for those sooner rather than later. So you'll get the longest period of time if you sign up, say, in June than you will if you sign up in August or September. Got it. Right. That makes sense. And this is, I know that where my stepson went, we had a payment plan. This is pretty common, right? Are there, have you ever run into schools that don't offer these? I guess There's we- a couple that I've seen, but they're so far in the minority that, right. you know, the other great thing about these is that they're um, interest-free. So you pay that account setup fee and that's it. You know, those monthly payments are interest-free. So it's really a great way if you know that maybe you're getting raised, maybe you get a bonus in the second half of the year. It's a great way to plan out. And, you know, I think families, when we're in the midst of raising our kids, we always forget about all their expensive habits, you know, their sports and their appetites and (laughs) driving the car around and all that stuff. But they're going to go and they're going to take all of that with them. And that's going to free up money. You know, the first time I went grocery shopping after my son left for school, I was 
shocked <laughs> by how little my bill was. Right. He and his friends weren't eating me out of house and home anymore. So, yeah, there'll be lots of little expenses that you might say, oh, yeah, you know, 100 here, no more sports, you know, no more dance, whatever that might be. Right, right. I don't have to worry about those expenses. I can put them towards college. Okay, so the next option does require borrowing. Parent Plus. Talk to us a little about this option. So this is one of two different parent options. The Parent Plus loan is a federally backed loan. Um, Usually most families can get it as long as they have good credit. So no you know, charge-offs, no late payments consistently. Um, it's not based on your debt-to-income ratio, and they, the credit check is pretty basic. Um, families can borrow the cost of attendance minus any financial aid their student has received. So that would be scholarships, grants, loans, and work-study. Um, and then that's the amount that you can borrow. The good news about those loans is that there's a fixed interest rate. This year, it's really low. It's only 5.3%. Um, And you can defer payments while your student is in school. So even if they go on to graduate school, you could still defer those payments. Um, What isn't so fun about this loan is that it has a pretty high origination fee, so 4.2%, which kind of stops people in their tracks a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think because the underwriting is so flexible, you know, the origination fee has to be a little higher. But, you know, you think $20,000 you borrow, $800 is coming right off the top, and that's a lot. But, you know, there's a lot of pros to the loan, too, so it shouldn't be completely disregarded out of hand. So it's another option. When I'm working with families, I'll often encourage them to try to pay interest while they're going along with a Parent PLUS loan just because it can get expensive. The interest isn't compounded, but it is added to the principal at repayment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the loan has been sitting around accruing interest for four and a half years, depending on the rate, it could add another $5,000 to the loan. So if you... Right. The ability to pay, you know, whenever you can, that's going to help in the long run with, you know, how much you end up repaying. So I want to clarify two things. The first is you mentioned that you could take out Parent PLUS loans to cover everything minus your financial aid. And you said loans as part of that financial aid. Is this a different loan then that loan than loans that might be included in your financial aid right. package? Okay, that's interesting. So student loans come from the government that's right. too. Okay. And direct loans, you know, 5,500 is the amount that a freshman is eligible for and it increases by about $1,000 per year. Right. So, but a lot of families are surprised by that low amount and, you know, um, and then find that they want to borrow more to cover the balance. Right. So the idea is ideally it's the student loans that you max those out first mm-hmm. and only then would you add a parent plus. Absolutely. And my second quick question would be, um, is there a limit like there is with the student loans? Is there a limit to how much you can borrow as part of a Parent PLUS loan? No, just up to the cost of attendance minus any Got financial it. aid. Yep. Got it. Okay. So then the next option, private loans or, um, yeah, private loans. So talk to us a little about those. Yeah. So private education loans, lots of different companies offer those, credit card companies, banks, you know, financial services companies. And Sometimes they're borrowed by the student with a parent co-signer. Some lenders refer to them as family loans, so both the parent and the student are on the loan. Um, and then there are some loans that are just for parents. So, you know, your interest rate could be fixed. It could be variable. You choose that. But it is going to be based on your credit history. So if you've got great credit, chances are you might get a good rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, if your credit is a little, eh, you might not get as good a rate. 
you know, if students are the borrowers, even though parents have might have excellent credit, I don't see that students typically get the best rates that are advertised. And families are often surprised by that. But I'll, you know, remind them, you've got a 17 or 18 year old with no credit history and no means to repay this loan. They're the primary borrower. And that's usually the reason why the interest rate is on the higher side. Got it. Um, I think families oftentimes think too, well, I want the burden of paying for college to be on my child. And I don't want to be involved. But when you're co-signing a loan, you're very much involved and you are on the hook for it. So right. be careful about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that one of the big challenges is that uh, if your student is going to go the traditional college path, colleges expect parents to be part of the process. Whether you as a parent want to be part of it or you don't, the colleges require it. And so that it's challenging. It's challenging. I know. All right, no. we can't have that, our, our, uh, not no. argument, but discussion today. <laughs> that's so another day. That's another day, exactly. Let's talk about the next option, because we have two more to, to talk about here. Some families like to use home equity because uh, they can oftentimes get a lower interest rate on the, on the loan. Um, but things that you need to consider are things like, you know, if you borrow too much against your home, let's say you get transferred and you're moving to uh, Silicon Valley, where real estate is extremely expensive. So if you've got too much out of the home that you're currently residing in, you know, will you have enough money to put a down payment on a home in your new location? Um, Remember that when you have a home equity loan, you go into immediate repayment on that. So Mm -hmm. that might preclude you being able to do a tuition payment plan. Um, So I think those are kind of the biggest drawbacks. you know, just whether you want to do that. And if you, and, and I think I, I can't stress enough that we're not just talking, if you have more than one child, chances are we're not talking about one child's tuition. Right. But three or four kids, how much can you reasonably, you know, take out either on a parent loan, co-sign on a private loan, or do on a home equity loan? Right. Uh, some people will say to me, you know, our plan is we live in a high rent district in a great school system. And as soon as the youngest kid is out of high school, we are gone from here. We're downsizing. We don't need to pay these taxes. Okay, that's a plan. You know, you're going to sell your house and you're going to use that to repay your loans. But do have a a plan for whatever loans you take out. Right, right. I think that's really good advice. Okay, final option. Mm -hmm. IRA, specifically a Roth IRA. A Roth IRA, right. Yes. So love this option. um, And you know, many families have Roths and don't realize that they can use these for education. The reason they can do that is because the contributions that you make are post-tax. So when you contribute to those accounts, the money's already been taxed and Mm -hmm. it's growing and growing and growing. And if you're under 59 and a half, you can withdraw those contributions at any time for any reason without tax or penalty. What you want to try to do is leave those earnings in the account until you're 59 and a half, because if you withdraw those early, then you're, you may incur a penalty, but you will certainly pay tax on those. These accounts work great for parents that are a little bit on the older side when their kids go to school, and they may say, you know what, we're going to use that whole thing for college, um, but you know, it's really up to each parent. And I would suggest that maybe you work with a retirement specialist just to make sure all your other retirement vehicles are on track and that you won't have to rely on your kids for support when you, because you, you know, 
liquidated one of these accounts. So it's a really great option. And some families use these when they're saving in conjunction with a 529 plan and a regular savings account. So they have, you know, a little bit more flexibility. With a 529 plan, you can't pay for plane tickets, but you can with a Roth you know, with the funds. Right. That's right. That's right. Great advice. Jean, thank you so much for being oh, with welcome. us. Today. I really Great appreciate to see you. It. You too. All right. We are going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about demonstrated interest during COVID. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking today about demonstrated interest during COVID and joining me for that conversation is my colleague, Lauren Randall, who is also a former admissions officer at Georgetown University. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. It's good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Good to have you here and to talk about something that we've been talking to our students about a lot. Um, So why don't we start with the first part, which is we talk about demonstrated interest. What the heck is demonstrated interest? Yeah, I think just kind of this best sum it up. It's a way to engage well, it's engagement with a college to let them know that you're thinking of them, that they're that you're actively considering them for whatever reason on your list of possible options at this point. Right. So ideally, right, this isn't just some school I threw in at the last minute because my guidance counselor said I should, but it's a school that you're actually truly interested in. Exactly. So how do you traditionally show demonstrated interest? 
I think traditionally the most obvious way was going to visit, showing up on campus. Um, I know that that has historically been a very high indicator for colleges when they are working their magic, their science, their algorithms of trying to figure out who is likely to enroll um, from, from those that they admit, that was one of the highest indicators is whether or not a student showed up and did a campus tour and visit. So that's really been the number one way to express interest is a, a in-person campus tour. Right. I think that's changed. Yes. Well, obviously, right? We have two major, well, we have one major issue, which is you can't visit right now. So that's a problem. And if you, the main way to show your interest was to visit, no longer an issue. I would say a side, I refuse to talk about silver linings to COVID because too many people have lost too many friends and family and it has been a disaster across the globe, right? But one development as a result of COVID is that there were many students who could never afford to visit. And as a result, perhaps looked less interested because they could never do that kind of gold star piece. So I want to throw that out there as um, something that I think a development that has been a positive for admissions in general. But let's talk about now. So since that main way of doing this has has kind of gone away for the time being, what are some ways in which students can still demonstrate, in, demonstrate interest? Because side note, still important to the colleges. They are still interested in whether or not you want them. I think it's probably more important than ever. I I think um, colleges absolutely understand that students can can and do apply to multiple colleges, but they only attend one college. So it's critically important to, you know, when when people ask like, why, why do they care? Why are they tracking this stuff? Um, because it's it's important to them to try to figure out who is likely to op- to accept their offers. So even before the pandemic, I think that the the I don't know if technology is the right word or, or the um, the approach has expanded a little bit um, beyond just campus visits. Um, I know that colleges have started to uh, even before the pandemic started tracking. Uh, which students were on their mailing list and even to the level of, are they opening up the emails sent to them or is it going straight to trash? So technology has been in place for some time. I think the biggest switch um, through the pandemic, and I think it's something here to stay when this, when this is all long gone, can't wait for that. But I think (laughs) one thing that's here to stay is the virtual engagement options. And that truly is a positive. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, because, it is very expensive to go tour colleges, but also it's hard to schedule it. it right. People, Time people are busy. People yes. are really busy. Um, so this is a way to, to get out there um, earlier to more diverse places to really, I, I think, open your eyes, uh, students' eyes to the options that are out there um, that are maybe beyond driving distance. So I think it's a it's a real positive, the virtual engagement options that students now have. Yeah, I completely agree. And the way that we, I talked a little earlier in the show about the teenager who lives in my house who is going through this process right now. Um, I think I'm still holding out hope because he's just a junior. I am hopeful that things will open up and we might be able to go on some campuses. So what we've been trying to use 
these tours and information sessions to do is to identify, is anything standing out as, wow, I really like that and I absolutely want to visit if we can, or I kind of am mad about that and if we visit, it won't be a priority or, wow, I really didn't like that and we're going to maybe consider dropping that from the list. So as a first wave of deciding, I think it's tricky to cut something based on one in, you know, info session and online tour, but at the same time, you can't apply everywhere. And I, and I think it's a, a brilliant development. And I agree with you that I believe it will stay. I hope it will stay. I think it has proved that you can share your school story in a dynamic way online beyond just, oh, we videotaped a tour and had it professionally put together. And isn't this great? Which is, often not that exciting. So, Right. And I think something you just mentioned there about videotaping a, a tour, I want to make sure that listeners understand the difference of a YouTube video is not going to be demonstrating interest. We're talking about events that you still have to register for. There is a time and day that you show up for, yep. and then you're in their system. So the YouTube videos or social media content, I still think that's really helpful, but that's not going to get you any kind of points or, right. you know, with it for the schools that are tracking that sort of uh, data. Right, exactly. So that could be a great way to figure out if this is a school for you. But today we're talking about showing demonstrated interest and going to a random YouTube video is not going to do that. So excellent point. Um, you want to do it through the proper channels because that's the only way it's going to get tracked. And then talk to us a little bit too about e- opening up emails. Like you said, if it just goes straight to trash, if you never click on it and open it, the colleges can see that. So what are the kinds of things you ask your students to do? Sure. Well, first of all, if if every college that you are of your short list or this of colleges that you're interested in, if you're not on their mailing list, now's the time. Yes. If, you are, if you are a junior, now is the time um, to get on their mailing list. And if you do a registered information session and tour, you will automatically be on their mailing list. Yes. You are going to be bombarded and most students are spammed with, and they say, well, I didn't even sign up. How do they get my name? So, you know, I get it. It is a lot. But for schools that you are really considering, first I say, you know, get comfortable with email. Email's not going anywhere. And I think maybe that's also been a positive change for students that are now in virtual learning. I think students are much more comfortable communicating and understanding the value of email. So I've seen that change in my students, but that needs to stick. So if you don't have it, maybe some students, um, I always can recommend, you know, Use the email that you're going to check, and maybe it's an email just for college purposes. Create that now um, so that you know and set a reminder that you're going in and clicking through um, what they're sending you because there might be additional opportunities. You know, one thing we talked about was uh, the increased virtual engagement of information sessions and tours. That's a great starting point. Mm -hmm. Colleges are doing even more than that. There might be opportunities for student panels, which I think is a great way to get a sense of of the school community and ask targeted questions. There are faculty panels. If you're trying to decide between the College of Engineering and the College of Arts and Sciences, you might have an opportunity for a faculty panel. Um, There might be interview opportunities with an admissions officer or student ambassador. You don't want to miss any of those opportunities to further engage, and a lot of that will come through email. 
Right, right. And um, so again, drawing on my own experience, it's so interesting after all these years of doing this work to be going through it as a parent. So with some of the things that my son has registered for, they include the parent email and information. And so I've been doing my part on my end. So if I get an email from a school and I think, oh, this looks interesting, or I know Jack has an interest in this, let me engage with this a little bit more. So as a parent, I've been engaging with those emails. I don't know, to me, that is not as necessary as the actual applicant engaging, but I'm operating from a position of A, I'm learning more, which I appreciate, but B, it's not going to hurt if I engaged more. What will be, what will hurt is if I imagine that I'm, what I'm doing is enough. It has to be driven by my son and it has to be, you know, he has to be the one opening the emails that come to his address. He has to be the one clicking on the links if he's really going to show interest. So I could show parent interest, but he needs to show his own interest. Completely agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so spring break is coming up. Traditionally, a very popular time to do college visits. Any advice for people on how they might use that time effectively in demonstrated interest? Demonstrating. I, I always think of junior year spring break as the official start to the college application season. I mean, I remember as a high school student, it was the one road trip I ever took solo with my dad, just <laughs> the two of us. And I mean, it was a really special time. So that's not going to be the case for juniors right now. You can't go on campus at most colleges. There might be some out there. So Mm -hmm. maybe check depending on your area and if you're comfortable with that. Um, But I still think this should be a a time to celebrate that. You know, this could be a week long deep dive uh, to start out. Um, And maybe you pick the colleges that are the furthest from home that you're unlikely to visit anyway. This could be a great start. Maybe it's just seeing the scope of what's out there. A large school, a small school, city school, rural school, your public and state, small liberal arts, religiously affiliated school, the bit more diversity of options. Like you were mentioning before, this could just get you, be able to make some distinctions. So that way you say, you know, when I have the opportunity to be in person later in the summer, early fall, sometime in senior right. year you're going to take a deeper dive um, or a more targeted approach to, to your, your final list of options. But I still think that this, you know, spring break, I wouldn't overlook it and say, well, I can't do anything. I think you can, and it can even be a family event. Um, I do think it's the student who needs to engage the most, but you know, make us, make a schedule the same way you would literally make a, a road trip map of, I can do two in a day and a driving right. distance. So, you know, make it a family schedule to, I would say, if you have a week at home, pick two colleges a day. These things actually do fill up. You might be surprised by. So map it out and get registered for it in advance because you don't want to be stuck, you know, right. <laughs> having done all that work and not being able to, to attend the event. So make sure you're registered in advance. Right. And actually, when you were saying that map it out, the beauty of this, if there's beauty in any of this, is that. You could do California in the afternoon and, and, you know, Massachusetts in the morning. And exactly. you can literally be all over the map if you want to be. And that is 
something that you really haven't had that opportunity to do before. Um, I would also point people's attention to our blog. If you blog virtual college visits, we actually wrote a blog. I actually wrote a blog about kind of how to do a virtual visit that most closely mimics or mirrors the actual visit that you would go on from the comfort of your living room. Although, does anyone want to do anything from the comfort of their living room right now? Because I certainly, certainly do not. But um yeah, I think these are really great tips. Any final advice around demonstrating interest um, right now when, when visiting isn't possible? Well, I think just one more tip I would say is, is that this is not just to demonstrate interest. This really is to help you. Absolutely. Um, so take notes. Things should ju- This should be part of your research because it's very likely that some of these schools you do these virtual visits, you're going to apply to and then have to write an essay about what you loved about them. And if you don't get to visit... This is part of your research. So jot down these notes, jot down notes about what you like, didn't like um, to help you get organized um, because this you know, can end up in essays or help you put together your list of must haves or deal breakers to apply to other colleges. Right. So, you know, think about it as not just demonstrating interest, it, which is a big part of it, but also helping you get to your end goal of being more informed so that ultimately your list of schools you apply to are great fits for you. Yes, I think it's really good advice um, for anyone who's listening and saying, well, wait, I'm a senior and I am going to be having to make these decisions possibly sight unseen. I would direct you on April 1st, we're going to be doing a show. It will not be an April Fool's show, but we will be talking about how do you choose if you can't visit. So come back in a couple of weeks. We'll be talking about that then. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. All right, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we get back, we are going to be talking about regular decisions, which are going to be coming in soon. Um, So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey Alexa. Hey Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. (laughs) 
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, We have been talking about a variety of things today, um, but our seniors have been waiting patiently because we haven't touched on much that that relates to them. Um, But we are going to start talking about regular decision results. And here to do that is my colleague, Abigail Anderson, who also is a former Reed admissions officer. Hi, Abigail. Hi, Beth. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to have you here. So... Regular decision. Let's start with something really basic. When are those going to start coming in? Oh my gosh, any day now. I think <laughs> I think um, so. In the next week or so by the time that this airs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you will definitely start hearing back, I would say, by the 15th. Um, but all colleges have to have a decision to you by April 1st. Except that- there are some changes to that this year, though, because it's COVID. So I- it could be a little bit later, but you'll probably get the bulk of your decisions in March. Right, exactly. Just so to clarify, there's a group of very select, all the IVs plus a handful of other highly selective schools have announced, I think. April 9th is when they're going to be announcing. And I love that they moved their deadline by nine days, but they only moved the deadline by which you need to get back to them by three. So super helpful. Yeah. I don't really know what I think about that. I guess they figure you want us more than we want you. So you'll deal with it. And one of a few things that I don't really love about that. But anyway, (laughs) we have friends in that world and they're typically not making the decision and Uh, So that's what it is. All right, let's talk a little bit about what results students can expect just in very basic terms. They're going to get one of likely three replies. What are those typically going to be? So the happiest one would be admit, and that means you're in and really no questions asked other than are you going to enroll? Um, The sad one on the far end of the spectrum would be deny, and that is a flat deny. You know, that's that's a no. Yep. And then the tricky one, which is obviously what we're going to talk about today, is that one in the middle, that one that keeps you on the edge of your seat, which is wait list. Right. And yeah, it, ironically, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And yet it's probably the last place you should be because unfortunately, what a wait list typically is, is just a really nice way of saying no. Um, yeah. However, why don't we talk a little bit before we can kind of get into what do you do with these results? Why don't we talk a little bit about what we think might happen? And I will caveat all of this by saying that I thought in the, when we went into the fall, I really truly did think that this might be a year where it might be a little bit easier to get into many, many schools. I was very, very wrong. (laughs) It is not going to be easier at all at the most selective level. Whether or not it will be at others is another question. But why don't we talk about what we're seeing in terms of what might happen in regular decision? Oh, my gosh. I just have to say the number of times this year that I've said, well, I wish I had a crystal ball because it just feels like no predictions have come true um, or very few have. But 
I do think because it's such a an unpredictable year that colleges respond to unpredictability by waitlisting more students because it, from an administrative and just a um, enrollment kind of yield side, it allows the school, it gives them a longer timeline to play around with and work with. They get to continue essentially making decisions from that waitlist into it could be as late as the summer. Right. I think one interesting thing, too, that is leading to that, and and um, something I would point our listeners to, Georgia Tech has a really amazing admissions blog they, written by their admissions office where they focus on a lot of things, and it's not just Georgia Tech-related. So if you're looking for another resource beyond our blog and our podcast, which I get, um, I highly recommend that. And they actually had a really great blog on uh, just the other day about this phenomenon. Well, one thing that I would point to is that if you've paid attention to news, there were massive increases in applications at many schools. However, what they are seeing is that it wasn't a massive increased number of students submitting applications, right? So what instead happened is that the students who are applying to college applied to way more than they normally would. And that is a straight-up nightmare for a college admissions professional who is trying to predict who is going to come. Because at the end of the day, if you applied to 15 schools, which, by the way, is way too many, then you can only go to one. So that's 14 other institutions who might have high hopes. You did everything right. You showed your demonstrated interest. You did all of these things. And then, but you can't go there because... You have to pick one and 14 are going to lose out in that scenario. So curious about what, you know, other thoughts about what we might start to see a lot of. Yeah. And I think that point, the really interesting point that is so probably meaningful for listeners is that it was that really top tier, most selective schools that saw the big increases in applications. So if we're kind of trying to think down the pipeline strategically and just being rational about it, they're probably going to have bigger wait lists. And then we always, regardless of whether it's a COVID year or not, Mm -hmm. we talk about the domino effect of going to the wait list at the highly selective schools. So even if you didn't apply to the Ivies or the super selective state schools that saw those big increases, you might be affected by those jumps because you might end up on a wait list that down, you know, at a less selective school that then loses students from their admitted class to a school up the chain. And it just, it can have a domino effect. So I think to kind of put a finer point on it, we're going to see more wait list activity. And I think we might see it for longer into the summer. And as you said, I think most students don't want to be on a wait list and they don't want to sit there. And the advice, I know you give this advice, Beth, and I, I do as I I do as well, which is if you can fall in a love, if you can fall in love with a school you're admitted to, like don't hang out on the wait list. They're going to just drag you along for a while and it might not feel great. So maybe try to deposit somewhere that's already said yes to you so that you're not riding this roller coaster. Right. And you and you absolutely you have to. Right. Because you must deposit somewhere, understanding that if you get off the wait list, you will probably lose that money. But 
you know, you can at some point withdraw that and then commit to a different school. Um, I think, too, if you find yourself on a lot of wait lists, I think I cannot stress enough the importance of don't do trophy hunting. Don't stay on every single wait list because, you know, you really want to see what happens because what you're doing, especially if those are not schools you're actually you have a school you really like and there's only two or three that you would change your mind if you got off the wait list, then let the ones go that you haven't. Um, you know, it's a kind thing to do. This is a whole other conversation we had on uh, and yes. back and forth internally here at College Coach earlier this week around being doing something nice and doing something kind. And I would say nice is congratulating your best friend for being, you know, getting into a school she really likes and being waitlisted at her top choice Kind is you also get waitlisted at that school that is not your top choice and you turn the waitlist down, which increases the odds that your friend will get off of that waitlist. So, you know, do the kind thing. If you know that you are not getting in there, you can't brag. I guess you could, but the, the novelty of where you got in weighs off, wears off almost instantly. It really becomes where are you going? And by the way, that wears off after a while. And then it's sort of, what do you do with your life? What are you working on? What, it, you know, what's your life all about? Like, so do the kind thing and turn down the schools where you know for sure you're not going to come off the wait list. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Send that good out, that ripple effect out into the world. I think we need more of it right now. <laughs> I think I completely agree with you. I think you are absolutely spot on. What about um, anything else that you would recommend um, as far as the waitlist is concerned and other things that students should do if they are waitlisted? One thing I really wish as a kind of field of college admissions that we talked more about, maybe by just changing the name of a waitlist, it's really a wait pool. And I think that if you can adjust your mindset to this is not a ranked list of students who are waiting for a decision. It is more a massive swimming pool. And the admissions office is going to dive into that pool and look for particular things. They don't have a number one student they're going back to. They're going to go back in and say, oh, we didn't get enough students for the math department. Or for some reason this year, nobody from Virginia enrolled. And so they're going to go back into the pool and look for the student from Virginia or the student who can join the math department. And so really reminding yourself that it is not a list. You are not being ranked. And as you always say, Beth, you might be a tuba (laughs) in a trombone year and you don't have a ton of control over what happens with your application in that right group of students waiting to hear back. Exactly. I think you can send back the, you know, whatever it is, if you check a box and, and on the portal, or there's a card old school that you have to mail back or whatever it is you need to do to let them know you're going to remain on the wait list. I would do that. I would send an update, a letter of continued interest. It should be brief. You are not writing a three page, you know, sort of thesis here. It's a couple of paragraphs Excited to still be under consideration. Here's what I've been up to since I submitted my application. If if admitted off the wait list, I would come if that's true. Please don't say it if it's not true. But if that's true, I would say that. Um, And then, you know, then move on to falling in love with the schools that admitted you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will say I worked at a school where saying if you would enroll, if you were admitted, did make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But if, if, if we felt like it was a lie or we called you up and it was not true, it made a difference in a very negative way. We did not appreciate that. But I agree, saying it if it's true can be right. actually a pretty get, big game changer. And actually, good point about um, if you called them up. In fact, when I was at Penn, that's what we would do to gauge interest. So yeah. before we actually officially pulled someone off the wait list, we would call and say, are you still interested? We would stop short of getting an official commitment because the students still had to get the actual acceptance and make that choice. But if they were somewhat ambivalent or unsure, we moved to somebody else who was interesting because we figured that at, at that later stage, it was likely that many students would have fallen in love with the choice that they had made already. And so we really were looking for who really, truly still wants to be here. So make sure you answer that call if it comes and make sure... And prepare yourself for that. Be, have conversations. If I got the call today, would I still go? And that answer could be one thing in mid-May and something completely different on August 1st. So, you know, it's a constant uh, conversation, I would say. We did the exact same thing at Reed. I think very common practice. And the one thing I would add is please check your voicemails. Have the voicemail box set up. Check your voicemail. The number of times I would call and say, well, we were going to offer you a spot on the wait list, but you didn't pick up and you didn't call me back. So we went to somebody else. It's pretty, I mean, like it happened. So I know my teenage nieces and nephews don't love voicemail, but like, please leave one or answer it. Have one or answer it. Yes. Good yeah. point. Don't leave one. Answer it. And actually, if you call back and you don't reach them, do leave a message. Leave a voicemail and right. say who you are because right. our old school phones on our desks don't have caller ID. <laughs> right, right. Really quickly, um, what about if you get denied? I can't count the number of times a student will say, I got denied, I'm going to appeal. Let's talk about the reality of appealing a denial. I've never seen it work. <laughs> I have not either. <laughs> I mean, I guess like there's an exception to every rule. Like maybe you realize your high school counselor sent the wrong transcript or something crazy, but um I think it's really hard to take bad news. It does not feel good. Um, but I have never seen that route work. Yeah. So a no is a no here. Yeah, I I have to agree with you. I think it's not a, but didn't they see how wonderful I was? It's a, they got the wrong transcript, right? If you can pinpoint that something went really wrong, then by all means, try it. Um, And there are schools that do have formal appeal processes, but especially when they don't have that, the likelihood that it would work. I was never, I was on, I've never been on either end of a successful appeal. So, you know, and I've been doing this work for 18 years, so We'll tell you something. All right. Abigail, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. This was really fun. Awesome. It's always great to have you on the show. And I want to thank all my other guests today. Next week, Ian is going to be here hosting. Um, He's actually going to be talking about developing writing skills in preparation for writing the college essay. I think a really great segment and hope you guys will tune in. We're also going to be doing listener Q&A. So if you have questions for us, you can always share them on, if you're not following us on Facebook, you should, or on Instagram, you should. Um, And you can put 
questions in those places, you could also email us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. So all ways in which you can interact with us, like I said, follow us on Facebook, um, read our blog, uh, check that out. And then don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.